0: You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit AscendKC.org. So God is trying to get a message to uh, us about evangelism, and uh, we're going to see that here from Acts chapter... Eight And so let me catch you up a little bit. Um, and uh, since we're opening to chapter 8, we need to know what happened in chapters 1 through 7. So let me give you a quick preview of that. Of course, uh, we know that Acts opens up. Jesus has been crucified and buried and resurrected. And in chapter 1, he ascends back to the Father and tells all these knucklehead disciples to go and make disciples, and, um, and so they get to work, and, and God obviously fills them with their, His Holy Spirit, and miraculous things happen, and we see these, these movements of mass evangelism. In Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people were saved at the preaching of one man. So you see this one-to-many evangelistic movement. We get to Acts chapter 4, and we find out 5,000 men were converted as... Uh, as the disciples preached. And then we get to Acts chapter 6 and they stopped counting. It just says the Word of God multiplied greatly and continued to increase. And so uh, many of you um, can probably remember the days of like Billy Graham, these mass evangelism citywide events. I I met the Lord in an event like that. In Lawton, Oklahoma, we had a citywide crusade, brought in a, a special evangelist and he preached on the second coming of Christ. And I didn't want Jesus to come back before I got saved. So I raced down the aisle, and I gave my life to Jesus, and it radically altered my life as a 15-year-old. And I just told him, Lord, I'm yours. I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. He's taken me very seriously on that, and I'll share more about that in a minute. I learned to share the gospel uh, using an outline I learned from an old program called Evangelism Explosion. Anybody remember that? And, And I just started sharing the gospel with my friends, and lo and behold, the Holy Spirit convicted their hearts. They repented of sin, accepted Christ. I'm like, man, I want to do this the rest of my life. So here I am, and I'm still doing it. And this is kind of a one-to-many moment, but the, the, the opportunity for all of us is to go from one-to-many to many to every. And so you all have circles of influence that I will never have. And there, there are just thousands of people that we know Um, collectively in this room that will never step foot in this church, but would sit and listen to you have a conversation with them about the gospel. So here's the big idea of the message this morning. I want you to get, if you you don't hear anything else that we say, here is the big idea. Personal evangelism produces personal conversion through personal conversations. Personal evangelism produces personal conversion through personal evangelism. All evangelism is personal. And we're going to see four different personal movements here through Acts chapter 8. Let's get our eyes on Acts chapter 8 beginning in verse 26. If you're there, say, I'm there. What are the rest of you doing, all right? So uh, verse 26, you want, you want to get there? Verse 26, Acts chapter 8. Does Jeff use the Bible around here? <laughs> I know that's a joke because I don't know he uses the Bible, right? And he's like, Jeff's already taught us all this. I got notes in my Bible from what Jeff told us. I, I know, I know. Look at verse 26 in Acts chapter 8. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south. By the way, would anybody just think that would be a great day? if an angel showed up in January in Kansas City and said to you, rise and go to the south with palm trees and bright sunshine and beaches, and wouldn't that be a great moment? Well, that kind of happened here in Acts chapter 8. Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Notice. This is a desert place. So lest you thought he was going to some resort island somewhere to go catch a tan and drink, um, you know, drinks with umbrellas sticking out, that's not the assignment that God's given him. He's giving him a hard assignment. He's asking him to go from his home in Jerusalem to a place he never, ever otherwise would have gone. Unless an angel of the Lord said, rise and go toward the south. So we had a decision to make. Let's find out what happened. Verse 27, and he rose and went. I think there's a big gap between verse 26 and verse 27. I think there's a lot of crying. I think there's a lot of like, contemplating, like you know, getting counsel, a little soul care going on there. You know, probably, there's probably a gap. But he eventually got to the place of surrender. Verse 27, he rose and he went. So let's ask some questions about this passage. First of all, who is Philip? I read this for years assuming this must have been Philip, one of the 12 disciples. Wasn't one of the 12 disciples named Philip? That's what I was assuming. Different guy. This is not Philip the apostle. This is Philip the deacon, the servant that was mentioned in Acts chapter 6 that was chosen to help with the administrative work to help the elders, Deacon Philip was chosen to help Elder Philip in the administration of church work. Philip was a servant. Secondly, we know that Philip must have been a godly husband and a godly father because Luke, who wrote Acts, tells us something about Philip in chapter 21. This is what Luke says about Philip. He says, We entered the house of Philip... The evangelist, so he gives him another label, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, one of the seven deacons in Acts chapter 6 that was chosen, and stayed with him, and he had four unmarried daughters. Anybody here got four unmarried daughters? I'm looking around. Anybody got four unmarried daughters? I have three daughters and a son. Two of them are married One of my daughters is married, and two of them are unmarried. Now, there's something unique about Philip's four unmarried daughters, and Luke tells us what it is. It says, who prophesied. Now, we can debate the New Testament understanding of prophecy. What we can't debate is, Philip heard some sermons in his home. I hear some sermons in my home. I get preached at. From time to time, by the four women who live in my home. My my wife and, and my daughters, they, they want to speak truth to dad, and, and a lot of times they help me fix my sermons that I think that I preach so eloquently, they preach back to me. Here, here's what we can say about that. Uh, whatever prophecy means, Philip's home was filled with biblical truth, which tells us that Philip didn't just bypass the people closest to him to evangelize. He started with people who were closest. And he filled the ears of his daughters with biblical truth who in turn filled the ears of other people with biblical truth. And so we know Philip was a servant. We know he was a godly husband and a father. And then of course we know Philip was an evangelist. That was the label that Luke put on him in Acts 21 verse 8. Philip the evangelist. And so... Philip was one who was called not to stay where he was, but to move into places where he could share the gospel. And so, in verse 27, it says, "...he rose and he went." So, being an evangelist requires leaving your comfort zone. It means living sent. It means we must obey at the prompting of the Holy Spirit. So, can I ask you, are you an evangelist like Philip? Are you willing to rise and go wherever God sends you? Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Absolutely, Trent. If an angel will show up in my bedroom and tell me to rise and go because I love Jesus so much, I will listen to the angel. Yeah, God's not going to do that for you. This is what God does. God has given you a pastor who tells you to open the Bible to read about a guy named Philip who had an angel show up to tell him to go rise and have a personal conversation with somebody else. That's the way that God speaks to us. And so my question is, who is coming to your mind right now? Where is God pointing you? Maybe Rising and going south doesn't mean packing up everything you own and selling it and moving to a southern state. Maybe it means you need to pay attention to the person who immediately occupies the house south of you. Maybe it's the person who sits immediately to the south of you in your algebra class. But at the prompting of the Spirit, he will call to mind the, the people in places where we need to go. I told you that um, I, I grew up in Lawton, Oklahoma, and I met the Lord there, and when I was 19 years old, uh, the Lord said, I need you to rise, and you're going to go to the east, to Memphis, Tennessee, and you're going to... Go to seminary and train for ministry, and then after that, you're going to rise and you're going to go a little bit uh, to the west in Newport, Arkansas, where you're going to be a youth pastor for a year, and then after about a year, you're going to rise and you're going to go to the north, up to Michigan, where there's this ministry called Life Action Ministries, where you're going to live in a trailer and visit essentially a different church every week with your wife and your four children, and um, you're going to basically being in a different church every week for the next 15 years, and so we lived that. And then and around 2008, the Lord said, I want you to rise, and I want you to go plant a church because there's these 13 people in Granger, Indiana that have been praying for a pastor, and uh, so you're going to do that. And over the course of thirteen, the last 13 years, that group of 13 people grew to about 2,000 people, and we planted eight other churches out of that, and things were going really well thriving ministry, and the Lord said, I want you to rise and go to the south. Move your family a thousand miles to Orlando to embrace this new position with Family Life. Are you familiar with Family Life? you ever listen to Family Life Radio, Family Life Today? Um, by the way, Andrea, my wife, is on Family Life Today right now, the current podcast right now, this weekend, and she's going to be on the radio on Monday telling her story, um, and so you want to tune into that. Anybody been to a Family Life Weekend to remember? You ever been to one of those? Yeah. So, those events, along with all the digital content and stuff, it's like, uh, I'm like carrying the weight of all that now. So pray for me. It's a very different assignment. But uh, we wanted to get the gospel to places and through avenues that, that maybe I couldn't get to from Granger. And so that's the assignment the Lord has for me right now. I had a conversation with Jeff yesterday. And I said, hey, Jeff, remind me, like, where did God send you from to plant ascend church he he told me he's like well i am kind of from um kansas city and spent some time in california sent me back he said for me it wasn't so much geographical this is what jeff said he said i think our biggest rise and go south moment was leaving a life trajectory toward comfort and business and making money to a life of investing in ministry and being stretched and not comfortable I had my MBA, I was in management, and I was positioned to head toward an executive track, and that's when we got our call to ministry. Now, how many of you are grateful that Jeff and Sally said, Yes, we're gonna go rise and we're gonna go and we're gonna plant this church and we're gonna be really uncomfortable with with you all. You say, Oh, somebody would have got around to it. There are just a few that have the guts and the courage and the surrender and the sacrifice and listen to the Spirit enough to obey the prompting to rise and go south. So I don't know what your call is going to look like, but we're all called. If you're a Christian, you're an evangelist. You're either an evangelist or you're an imposter, just like Philip. The question is not, are you sent? The question is, to whom are you sent to this week To have a personal conversation about personal conversion, that's the question. Here's the second thing we want to see. Let's look at a personal hunger. There's another man in the story we're going to meet here. Verse 27, he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure... He had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. There is so much data packed into those two verses. Let's unpack it. We meet a man. We don't know his name. He's identified as a man from Ethiopia. Now, when you think of Ethiopia, Um, Don't think of this little geopolitical plot of ground in Africa that we think of now. Ethiopia was code language for the entire continent of Africa in biblical language. Remember, the gospel had not traveled outside of Jerusalem at this point. And so, we have this man who's an Ethiopian. Here's what we know about him. He was in the cultural minority. He was African. He was a black dude. And he had traveled a thousand miles. It probably took him five months to travel to Jerusalem. Do you think he felt like a minority culture? You may say, yeah, a black dude in a white culture there in Jerusalem. Nope. He was a black dude in a brown culture. Because in that part of the world... They don't look like most of the people in this room. Certainly not me. And so, this was a black dude going into a brown culture. He stuck out. He was a cultural minority. Not only was he a cultural minority, he was politically powerful. This guy was the chief financial officer for the Queen of Africa. He was rich, he was powerful, and he was influential. Thirdly, he was in the intellectually elite. How do we know that? It tells us specifically he was reading. You're like, so what? My kindergartner reads. Do you know how few people in this culture, in this time frame, could read? And do you know how few Books, scrolls, podcasts, websites, and blogs, there were to read at this point in human history. He was reading. He was intellectually elite. He was also not only culturally minority, politically powerful, and intellectually elite. You know what else we find out in those verses? He was sexually wounded. He was a eunuch. What is a eunuch? Now, let me just call time out for a second right now. If there are any middle schoolers in the room right now, or if there is any residual middle school thinking in your brain right now, we need to turn up the maturity level for just a moment. Can we do that? It's a safe place. Can we talk about this? It's in the Bible. Let's talk about it. What makes a man a eunuch? What had happened to this guy? A eunuch is a man who has been castrated. A part of his anatomy had been cut off. You say, why? Why would anybody do such a thing? You have to understand, in the ancient world, the only men who were trusted to be close to women of power were eunuchs. When your manhood has been cut off, it pretty much ensures that you are not going to rape or even flirt with the women in your life. The only way that this guy would have been trusted to get close enough to be that close to the queen was for him to become a eunuch. Now, we don't know how he became a eunuch. Some men in that culture likely chose that procedure for themselves because he wanted to obtain the influence, the position, and the power that came being that close to the queen. Can you imagine sacrificing so much for your career advancement that you would choose to become a eunuch? In other eunuchs, were castrated as children because their families wanted to position themselves for that kind of career advancement. And we don't know how he became a eunuch. Here's what we do know. This guy would never be married. Are you single? And you think, I don't think I'm ever going to get married, and that, that's a sore spot for you. And it's like, why does everybody else get to be married, and I can't get married, and for whatever reason, God hasn't allowed you to be married? you need to get to know the Ethiopian eunuch. We also know this guy would never have children. Has infertility been part of your story? Have you wondered why God doesn't allow that privilege for you? You need to get to know the Ethiopian eunuch. We also could assume that this guy likely had a few battles in his mind about gender identity. Am I a guy? What makes a guy a guy? The other guys I know have the ability to do things that I can't do. What does that mean for me? How do I act out in gender places? And you can imagine that some of those things probably rattled around in his head. If you're single... If you're infertile, if you've ever been sexually wounded, if you've ever struggled with your gender identity, you need to get to know this Ethiopian eunuch. Here's another thing we know about him. He was spiritually hungry. You see, all of his intellectual pursuits had not satisfied the hunger in his soul. That's why he made the 1,000-mile journey to worship. He must have heard there are these people up there that have this temple to their God, and they meet with God, and God meets with them. And he curiously took the trek to Jerusalem. All of his wealth hadn't satisfied the hunger of his soul. All of his political power hadn't satisfied the hunger of his soul. So he was spiritually hungry, but here's another thing. He was religiously rejected. Once he got to Jerusalem, he realized that he would never be accepted. He hit a wall, a literal wall. There was a literal wall around the temple that Ephesians chapter 2 describes as the dividing wall of hostility that kept Gentiles out. He was a Gentile. Not only was he a Gentile, he was a eunuch. Deuteronomy chapter 23 says this No one whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. I'm sure you've all committed that first to memory. Um, probably not. Really? Why? I never read that. Why? Why would that? Just seems like you're being rejected. Like, why can't this guy come in? He's probably thinking the same way. Look at all the things that I've done. Look at look at my. Can I buy my way in? I've got political influence. I have got a letter from the Queen. You can't come in. You're a Gentile. You're a eunuch. You're rejected. People like you don't belong here. Have you ever been religiously rejected? Have you ever felt like you didn't have the religious credentials to get near enough to the presence of God? Have people ever put a wall up and said, people like you don't belong here, you're not good enough? Have you ever felt that way? You need to get to know the Ethiopian eunuch. Not only was he religiously rejected, here's the good news. He was passionately pursued. And so are you. Notice verse 29. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? Great question. Verse 31, he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up And sit with him. So he's returning back to Ethiopia, but he is not returning empty-handed. Somewhere between Ethiopia and Jerusalem, somebody put a Bible in his hand. He's reading the scroll of Isaiah. Now, don't think about a nice leather-bound copy of, of God's Word like we all our privilege to carry this was this was a huge, you know, scroll of Isaiah. You can actually see them if you take a trip over to to, to Israel and they discovered them in the Dead, Dead Sea Scrolls in 1948. You could see these these copies. These were rare things that you didn't just, you know cut and paste and email to your friends, you know, and pull up the app on your device. He he somehow, I don't know if he went to the Jerusalem Bible bookstore. I don't know if he, you know, Amazon Prime was available back in the day and he kind of ordered one. No, he wasn't. Somehow he acquired a copy of the prophet Isaiah written 700 years before this time, something we can all read by turning a few pages back in our Bible. He was reading a copy of Isaiah. Now, We're going to find out later that he was reading Isaiah chapter 53, a part of Isaiah that we're mostly familiar with. But we can assume that he's reading all of the scroll of Isaiah, all that Isaiah had written. And if he was to read just three chapters beyond Isaiah 53, in Isaiah 56, do you know what he would have been reading? Isaiah 56 verse 3 says, let not The eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. Dry tree is a metaphor for someone who is infertile, who can't reproduce themselves. And God says through the prophet Isaiah to eunuchs, don't think that way. Don't let your identity be caught up in what you can and you cannot do. It goes on, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument. Wait, did God just say eunuchs could come on the other side of the wall? How are they going to get within the walls? He must have been thinking this as he's reading Isaiah. His experience just told him... You can't come in. You don't belong. What he's reading in God's word says, you can come within the walls. It goes on and says, God will give him a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. Eunuchs will never have sons and daughters. But God says, I'm going to give you something better. I'm going to give you a name. A name that identifies with God. It goes on. He says, I will give them an everlasting name, and that shall not be, what? Cut off. You think that language had any significance for a eunuch? God's going to give me something that shall not be cut off? I've had things cut off. I know what that feels like. And God is identifying with him and saying, there's a promise for you. There's something coming. There's something available to eunuchs that never has been available before. And this guy is reading it in the prophet Isaiah. And God loves this guy so much, he sends an angel to tell Philip to go explain it to him. Verse 7 says in Isaiah 56, these, these eunuchs, I will bring to my holy mountain. He just returned from the holy mountain. I will bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house, that wait, He's not returning to Ethiopian joyful. He's, he's returning sad and despondent. And yet God says, "You're going to return from my holy mountain joyful. How's that going to happen? It says, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Does that verse sound familiar? Where else do we hear someone in the Bible quoting, my house shall be called a house of prayer? Who's that? Jesus. Do you remember when he went to the temple? And do you remember when he was clearing out the money changers and turning over tables? And he told them why? Why? He said, because my Father's house is going to be called a house of prayer. Jesus was quoting from Isaiah 56. But you know what? We hear that, but we truncate the last few words of what Isaiah actually said. What did he say? A house of prayer for who? For all people. All kinds of people. All kinds of sinners, all kinds of ethnicities, all kinds of brokenness, all kinds of intellectually elite, all kinds of spiritually hungry, all kinds of religiously rejected, all kinds of ethnic minorities, and all kinds of sexually wounded. My house, my presence. Will be a house where people can pray and have access to me. All kinds of people. This is what the eunuch is reading. And so he must be thinking, how do I get access to that? God has the ability to change my whole identity, the way that I'm thinking. He's put a Bible in my hand. I just don't understand it. Do you know what God did next? God not only put a Bible in his hand, he put a friend by his side. Verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. You see, without the Spirit of God prompting us, we're going to stay in our comfort zones. Without the prompting of the Holy Spirit, we're going to huddle and isolate ourselves into pods of people who agree with us, look like us, and act like us. but the Spirit of God says you're going to have to move. You're going to have to go to people who look differently, people that are not of the same color as you, not as the same culture as you, not as the same age as you, not as the same socioeconomic status as you, and people who are not as the same political party as you. Our tendency is to huddle into groups of people that are like us, And that's why God had to send an angel to Philip and said, move, go toward this guy, go sit with this guy. And so the eunuch does something significant. He invites him to come closer. He invited Philip to come up and sit with him. That was a very humbling thing for this eunuch to do. He had to take the the posture of a learner. He had to admit, I don't understand what I'm reading. I need help. I need somebody to to walk me through how to respond to this. Get me further down the road in my spiritual journey than I can go by myself. That's why we need community with one another. That's why we need biblical soul care. That's why we need small groups. That's why we need counselors and people to come beside us. God's plan for drawing people to himself is not typically sending angels. God's plan is, is always sending people to sit with other people, to have personal conversations with people who have a personal hunger so that we can introduce them to, number three, the personal substitute. Look at verse 32. Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep that was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And of course, now we're reading from Isaiah chapter 53 is what he's reading. Verse 34 says, And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself? or about someone else? Great question. The, the question is essentially this. Who is the Bible about? Now, you know what the default thinking of the average American Western Christian is? The Bible is about me. I I have these struggles and these issues, and I need encouragement, and I need advice. And so every morning, I open up my YouVersion app, and I get my little devotional word for the day, and we read it as if the Bible was written about us, to somehow tell us how we're supposed to live. The Bible doesn't tell us how we're supposed to live. The Bible tells us about how Jesus lived. Every word on every page is about Jesus. It's not written about me. Now, careful. The Bible is written for me, but the Bible's not written about me. And that's what the the Ethiopian eunuch asked. Is this about me? Is it about Isaiah? Is it about you? Is it about me? And Philip said, let me tell you who it's about. It's it's about the substitute. Isaiah 53, verse 3 says, he, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men. So this Ethiopian who has been rejected by men is reading about someone who has been rejected by men. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. This guy has wounds? Ethiopian. I have wounds. Wait, And I keep seeing this word for, the most important word in the Bible, for, F-O-R. Jesus did something for us. He did all of this as a substitute for us. Verse 5, right? verse 4, he He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. Ethiopian eunuch is reading this. Wait, somebody's taken a sharp object and cut this guy, pierced him? I, I know what that feels like. Somebody's done that to me too. I want to know more. He was he was crushed for our iniquities upon him the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. I have wounds like somebody can heal my wounds his wounds heal my wounds. Speaking of a substitute, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon, us, upon him the iniquity of us all. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was, next two words, cut off. The eunuch is reading about someone who was cut off. Out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. This guy wants to understand. He's he's beginning to understand that this guy was treated as if he was a eunuch. He was cut off. He was rejected by the religious establishment. Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth. Prerequisite for an evangelist, you have to open your mouth. It's one thing to pray for people. It's one thing to, you know, live a model life. Thank you so much. You are not an evangelist until you open your mouth. And Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this Scripture, beginning with the Scripture, he didn't end with it, he began with this Scripture and he told him the good news about who? About Jesus, which ultimately answers the question, who is this about? It's not about you, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. So Philip went on to explain the personal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ for all who will repent and believe. He went on to explain that Jesus, just a hundred days ago, died on a cross in his place as a substitute for his sin And he lives to save all who will repent and believe the good news. That's what he explains to the Philip. He explains that... Yeah, you've been cut off, so have I. We're all cut off. We've all got this dividing wall of hostility between us and God. And the only way we can get on the other side is if God breaks through it from the other side and pulls us onto the other side. That's what he did with the life and the death and the burial of Jesus Christ. Two things necessary for my salvation. Number one, my penalty has to be paid. Jesus did that with his death on the cross. Number two, my perfection has to be performed. And Jesus did that with his life. And that's what he offers all who will repent and believe and trust that I'm not good enough. I can't perform all of my confusion, all of my identity, whatever all of that is. It all finds its conclusion in a personal substitute that lived the life I couldn't live and died the death that I should have died. And if you've never repented of sin and placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I appeal to you just as Philip appealed to this eunuch, come and receive the free gift that is offered to everyone who has ever been religiously rejected, everyone who's been sexually wounded, everyone who's been, had a confused identity, come to this personal Savior. In order to be saved, you have to think like a eunuch. Have you ever humbled yourself to that point? Are you still holding on to your political power? You're still holding on to your intellectual elitism and the fact that you can read, the fact that you can make some money. You're a CFO for somebody. Yeah, that's not going to get you on the other side of the wall. You need a personal substitute, which leads to, finally, a personal conversion. Look at verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. By the way, where were they? Were they by the beach? Weren't they in a desert? Where'd the water come from? In God's providence, he provided just enough water at just the right place so that this guy could say, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Isn't that a great question? Like, don't you wish all your personal conversations with people that you're talking to about Jesus would end that way? So how do I get baptized? When do I get baptized, Right? How did Philip answer him? Let's look. The answer is found in verse 37. Just Everybody look at verse 37. It's very important. How many of you are having trouble finding verse 37? Raise your hand if you can't find verse 37. Who stole verse 37 from my Bible, right? Relax. There's a little footnote at the end of verse 36. If you look, if you look down at the bottom of the page in the fine print, you'll find verse 37. You're like, why did they put it down there? What's going on? Let me tell you what's going on. So, the best and the oldest manuscripts that we have do not include what is listed there in verse 37. It's a little interpretive challenge. You have to kind of make decisions. Are we going to go with this manuscript or that manuscript? This one has it, this one doesn't. Which one's older? Probably go with the older. So, we go with the older and it doesn't have that. So, where did it come from? How many of you have a study Bible? You have a study Bible where you have God's words at the top of the page, you have man's words at the bottom of the page, about God's words at the top of the page, well, apparently they used to do that too. And, you know, somebody's like, well, I'm going to put a little commentary, you know. Probably the best answer to the question that he asked in verse 36 is this. And so somehow that got jumbled up and it probably got inserted in there. We don't know, but here's the good news. It doesn't change anything about what we believe. As a matter of fact, can I read to you verse 37 that you have there in your footnote? This is what it says. This is the answer to the question, what prevents me from being baptized? It records there. And Philip said... You might say, Philip must have said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, by the way, is that true? (laughs) That's a really good answer, right? So we don't know exactly um, what was said. We don't have all the details of the conversation. We don't have a YouTube video or, you know, an Insta story or anything like that to kind of record the conversation. So we, we can kind of assume that in between this, that Philip must have said, well, Your question is, "What must I do to be baptized?" It's like, well, he must have told him, like, like a hundred days ago, we were standing on a mountain, and Jesus, right before he went up, he's like, "Go and make disciples of everybody, and teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit." And you didn't, but said, "Well, what prevents me from being one of those disciples? Get baptized." That's kind of the conversation you would imagine would happen there. So that brings us to verse thirty-eight, and he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went. Down, underline those two words. I like that. They w- they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So, what's baptism all about? Baptism is about who you're going to identify with, right? So, baptism is a, a double drama. It's kind of a kind of a theatrical episode. And, and You know, what you're saying is, I'm identifying with the guy that lived the life I should have lived, died the death that I should have died. He was buried, but then he was resurrected. He was raised. And so when we're baptized, we're saying, the life I live, not good enough, that guy died. What do you do with a dead guy? You bury him. But he rises to a new identity, a new life in Christ. That's what baptism is all about. He's identifying with Christ. Baptism is the way that you announce your changed identity to the world. It changed everything. And notice in order to do that, he went down into the water. Verse 39 says, And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. They went on his way. So, Baptism is the way that we announce that our identity has been changed. He went down, but then he came up. He went down into the water, rejected by men. But he came up out of the water, rejoicing in the Lord. All right, now I don't know if Pastor Jeff like, ever gets animated when he preaches, or if he lets you say amen and shout and hoot and holler a little bit. I'm going to give you permission today, Jeffs. Jeff will never know. You don't have to tell it, okay? So I've got some really good stuff. And if you do your part right, I do my part right, this is going to be fun. You ready? Here we go. He went down into the water, wounded and cut off. He came up out of the water, healed and brought near. That's better. Let's keep going. And he went down into the water, physically clean, but spiritually dirty. He came up out of the water, physically dirty, but spiritually clean. He went down into the water, a servant of the queen. He came up out of the water, a servant of the king. He went down into the water on his way home to Ethiopia. He came up out of the water on his way home to heaven. He went down into the water as the one evangelized. He came up out of the water as the evangelist. He went down into the water as the one sent to. He came up out of the water as the one being sent. Conversion changes your whole identity. Whatever you were before, when you went down, you came up out something different. That's what a personal relationship with Jesus Christ does. That's what personal conversion does. You're changed. You're not who you were. You have a different identity. Your identity is in Christ. He went down into the water identifying as a eunuch. He came up out of the water identifying with Jesus. That has to be the story of every personal convert of Jesus. Now, look at what happens next. After he came up out of the water, notice what it says. The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. Wait! What about discipleship? How are we going to get this guy plugged into a small group? (laughs) When are we going to plant a church? In the Lord's providence, God said, all right, Philip, now we're going to move you over here. There's another group of people. And the Ethiopian eunuch went home to Ethiopia alone. But he didn't go empty-handed. What was he carrying with him? A Bible. Because somebody put a Bible in his hand... And a friend by his side, he was the evangelized. Yet from that moment on, with a Bible in his hand, he went to be a friend beside someone's side so he could be an evangelist. Now, let me ask you a question Do you have a Bible? Do you know what a privilege it is to have a Bible? Have you been taught the Bible? (sighs) We've been so well taught. I know you've been so well taught. You don't need more information to be in a personal evangelist. You need more courage. You need more sacrifice. You need more compassion. You need more love to go to people that don't look like you, don't vote like you, don't agree with you, And to engage them in a personal conversation about personal conversion. Let me ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Maybe before we start talking about you being a personal evangelist, we need to talk about your personal conversion. Have you truly surrendered your life to Jesus Christ as Lord? Has he given you a new identity in Christ? No matter how intellectually elite you are, politically powerful you are, religiously rejected you are, sexually wounded you are, Christ offers you a new identity through personal conversion. You say, What do I have to do? You have to repent and believe that Jesus is your substitute. Embrace it by faith. I would assume most of the people in this room have a testimony about a personal conversion. How many personal conversations have you had with people in your sphere of influence about the personal substitute that Jesus became for us? Before you start thinking about going to Ethiopia or going to some remote part of the world? How about those four daughters in your home? How about the people who are closest to you? How about the people that you work with? In the culture that we're living in right now? People that don't know Christ? Christ? I think that people that gather for worship on a Sunday morning only care about ourselves, and especially in the cultural moment that we're in right now, as much as we say we are pro-life, many times what they hear is you're pro-birth. But do you care about me? I'm sexually wounded. Do you care about me? I'm religiously rejected. It's not enough just to have the right position. We have to have the right posture of love and compassion and grace while we speak the truth.